0: Sometimes, after a play or a musical, the writer or director or actors will come out and talk to the audience, answer questions about the show, have a discussion. These chats are usually nice and collegial. But there was one a few weeks ago after a performance of a Broadway play called Slave Play that went off the rails. So Slave Play, it is all about the racial drama present in interracial relationships, the playwright is Jeremy O'Harris. He is black and gay. And in a recent talkback after Slave Play, a white woman in the audience tried to tell him that his play was racist against white people. Racist against her. I don't want to hear that white people are the because play. you're talking about black people.
1: He was not having it. This play is about eight specific people. And if you don't see yourself up here, then that's great. You aren't one of them.
0: This went on for a while. The loud woman kept yelling. The crowd kept trying to shut her up. Eventually, she walked out to applause. What is it about Jeremy O'Harris and slave play that causes that strong of a reaction in a space that for a long time has been pretty, pun intended, drama free? I am Sam Sanders. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Today we pose that question and many others to Jeremy O'Harris himself. Jeremy O'Harris is not your average Broadway playwright. He is just as comfortable in the spotlight as he is in a writer's room. He loves doing press. He loves being seen. He dresses fabulously. He is six foot five with big hair. Wherever he is, you notice... In this chat, Jeremy and I talk about that, what it's like to be a playwright comfortable with the spotlight. We also discuss whether he actually feels welcomed by Broadway, even as he's becoming one of its biggest stars. And we talk about whether slave play is really as incendiary as a lot of people say it is. Plus, that time Rihanna came to a performance of slave play and why Jeremy literally began the show late for her and let her text during the show. Okay, let's get into it. Here's me and Jeremy O'Harris chatting in New York at Playwrights Horizon in Manhattan, where Jeremy is working on his next play. We will start by talking about whether his play, and my show as well, is made specifically for white people or black people or something in
1: between. <laughs> And but you have like a dedicated black fan base too, it seems like.
0: I do. We try to be hella black.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. really wild because I was seeing people on your feed put up a lot of gifs, like, mm, uh, <laughs> You saw what? The <laughs> double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're gonna interview him? And I yeah. was like, oh f- he has like like actual black people listening. They him. listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and like this is the thing that you deal with a lot in your work. Like, the audience is black, the audience is white, but like who is the first there are questions of like who is it primarily for and you get the, this question a lot when your work deals with black stuff yes and like
1: i don't well, know no, i don't even know i actually i don't think that's true okay i think that people get actually get this question more when their work um, intersects with the entanglement of, like, our country. And, like, yeah. you know, and so then it starts to become, like, so, like, no one's asking, like, uh, or very few people are asking N.W.A., right or were asking N.W.A. if they were making their music for white people or black people, yes, right? Yes. Even though their fabulations around, like, what their identity as, like, gangsters were titillated white people. I feel like when you look at the writing about it at the time, there was very little, like, they're obviously doing this for white people's consumption. Do you even think of the question, who was this for with Slave Play? I mean, I think that, like, it's a question, if, if a question's been asked of you a lot of times, you have to, like, think about it, yes. right? Yes. Um, but I, I 100% know who I wrote the play for. And it was for me first, right? Mm. And I don't know that I'm not black. So it's, like, it's like, like, unless someone can explain to me how I'm not black, then, like, I can't say that the play was written for anyone but me. Um, I can also say that I w- wrote it with the recognition that it was gonna be done in a theater. Right. Which is and, mostly, and that well, has a white audience a lot of times. Well, I mean, I think it's complicated, right? I think for me, a theater isn't necessarily white, but there are, there are spaces where it is whiter than it could be in other spaces, yes. right? So that's why my main goal was to do it with a, it like a, I literally say this all the time and people don't believe me, but like whatever, they cannot. I wanted to do this at Abrams. i had had a whole plan. When I showed up at Yale University, I told everyone, uh, I, I was the freak. Huh. literally i was the one who didn't have an agent i was the one who didn't have a, pro- a production on the horizon and i was the one who said i'm from california and i want to make plays that are going to like bring my friends to the theater who don't see theater mm-hmm. and i want to make plays not in institutional theater cuz the plays they do don't inspire me they don't excite me yeah. and I think that, like, me having that ethos when we would have meetings with big theaters, yeah. like, served me really well. Yeah. You know, because I would be – because I also know everything about all the theaters. You can't decide you don't want to f*** with something if you don't know enough about it. There you it. go. And so I knew a lot about all these theaters. Yeah. So I could be like, why is it that at The Atlantic, all the theater – all the plays by women and people of color in the basement? Ooh. I don't want to go down to a mausoleum when I do my play. There you go. And then Annie from The Atlantic laughed at that dinner we had because, like, the, the playwrights from Yale uh-huh. get to do dinner with – um all these different theater companies. Oh, nice! And at that theater, she like laughed. And I remember even Amy Herzog, who who's teaching that class, sort of was like, "Okay, <laughs> yeah." And then, and then she was like, "You know what? That's a really good question. That makes sense." And let's talk about it. Yeah. And we had this really. great... And then the next season, like the two first plays that opened on their main stage were play a play by a woman, which uh-huh. was a really amazing play called Blue Ridge. Uh huh. Um, and the other play was a play by a black man. Okay. It was a play so you Fireflies. made change. Well, it wasn't my. It wasn't me making change necessarily. I think that these were... I articulated something that like this theater People was already the starting only. to think about. Okay. And I think that's one of the reasons why a play like Slave Play ended uh-huh. up not having to premiere at Abrams, um, but ended up premiering to play at a place at New York Theater Workshop because uh-huh. all the theaters in the city started to like have a different conversation about who they wanted to have on their stages. Yeah, Knowing that
0: that's your aesthetic, that you want to challenge the current infrastructure of theater, my question getting ready for this interview was like, I love that you got it on Broadway and I love that you're screwing with that entire paradigm, but you could have said we're going to do this in Houston at a park in a black neighborhood, or we're going to do this in Atlanta at a strip club, or we're going to do this in California, like, in Compton. Do you ever say the best way to get it to those folks is to not do this stuff on Broadway?
1: I did say that.
0: Yes. I talk literally about did that. say that. Yes.
1: So uh the thing – okay, so basically – what I knew as well, though, I'm just—I feel like I have to say like three things, Because okay. I didn't finish answering your other question. Sorry. No, it was fine. No, that was my fault. i, <laughs> I went on a tangent. Um, I because I knew it was going to happen in the theater. I said, "White people will see this," and the same way that white people see my black yeah. when I walk down the street every day. Yeah, but. Um, i want to make a i want to make a play that doesn't comfort white people and make them want to say i want to make subscribers unsubscribe from that theater so that there'll be more seats for for people that look like me in the theater ah. period point okay blank. and that and my whole m o from the entire time I've been doing this play at every theater you can go sit in I can show you emails has been like, how do I get more black people here? How do I get more black people here and 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 the t on that is that like. Um, the T on, like, why it, was, why it didn't premiere, like, a black theater is because, like... And we, I had this conversation at National Black Theater the other day. A lot of the black theaters haven't gotten the really exciting avant-garde work because they aren't interested in it, mm. you know? Mm. Like, the work that the black theaters are interested in generally leans more conservative or... And this isn't all the work they do. And this isn't everyone who's who's come out of those spaces. Mm-hmm. But I would say one one could make the a fair argument that the most uh, exciting... literary works of like black playwrights have happened at white theaters partially because they'll take more chances you think yeah because well because i think that white theaters that white theaters i i sometimes wonder if black theaters don't trust black audiences there is a certain level i think this is a lot of
0: times when you have black people making art for black audiences they will be a little bit more paternalistic
1: with those audiences than I think with white audiences yeah and, and they, I think there's a decision made about like what black what audiences need want to see yeah and like what, and also I think there's a different prescription for and I, and I think this is just community right like because yeah. like the, the movement theater company which is an affinity based theater in New York is actually doing the avant-garde black work that like I've always wanted from and I think it's just that a lot of the theater companies that are affinity based theater companies for black people in the city have a tradition of it, it has the same problem that all the white theaters have which is like their audience it was built in the 60s and 70s right mm-hmm. and so like there's making work for the people from the 60s and 70s who go to all their shows the baby boomers you see all those shows those those are just black baby boomers but I just think that's something that I think has to be a part of this conversation as well when Mm -hmm. we think about who who the plays are for and how they work but when one of the things that happens when you're gonna have a play on Broadway Mm -hmm. is that you have to meet with the theater owners Mm -hmm. now theaters are owned by like five people five (laughs) families like a lot of them have. yeah so like the main one is the Schubert family Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a older white man named Bob who you go to his you go to a meeting I think it's his daughter is like the other person (laughs) there and there's like another person there and you have to talk to them about like why your place should be on be in their state and And like like, win them over so I I went to the meetings and the thing that I have on a lot of other people and this is my this is one thing I've I've, I feel like um, over the last year I've gotten really confident being like no I'm this is something I I am like really good at I know history Mm. like and I know theater history and mm-hmm. a black theater history. And I can tell you every black play that has ever premiered at the booth theater, which is a Schubert theater. I can mm-hmm. tell you every black play that's ever premiered at the golden theater, which is a Schubert theater. Mm-hmm. I can tell you every black play that's ever premiered at any of the theaters that are on Broadway. I can tell you not just the black plays, but the white plays, what award there like, and why a play like slave play is not that transgressive to happen there. Mm. Right. Yeah. You, well, you know, in 1975 or 1976, you all premiered the first production of Ntozake Shange's For Colored Girls, right? Uh-huh. Or I could say that in 1969 at the Golden, mm-hmm. you premiered Look Back in Anger. Or I can say at the Blasco Theater in 1969, you premiered the second run of Raisin in the Sun. So you know this, Yes, things. and these are the things I was saying to them in the meeting when they were asking me why should slave Play go on Broadway because it's so transgressive. Oh, you're it's like, it's there's horrible. a history. Yes, there's a history of all these things happening here. Yes. And for me, after that meeting... um. It was, it, you know, you, you say all this stuff, you know, and then people start talking about the like, the, they're like, yeah, so that your audience is, you, you, you've obviously proved that you can sell out a play downtown for 200 seats. This is 804 seats mm. a night for six months. That's hard. How are you going to do that? Yeah. You know, because that means you not, your audience has to also be tourists. Your audience mm-hmm. can't just be the cool kids from Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. And I was like, why can't it? Yeah, you know, and you've worked hard to make that happen. I've worked hard to make that happen, um, but it's complicated, right? And I think that after that meeting, I did have this weird, like, F- that, like, F- all of this. Like, I don't want to have to talk to someone about why my play is worth it here. I don't want to talk to them about, like, what my plan is for, like, um, making work that white tourists from Oklahoma want to see. They're not going to want to go see Slave Play over over to Kill a Mockingbird like i my my play is not based on the biggest play on the biggest book that every child has to read in ninth yeah. grade so it's like I can't articulate to them why they need to see that and maybe but, they don't have to see it it's like, exactly it was like maybe they don't have to see it and maybe it doesn't have to be on Broadway because Broadway is literally just a plot of land in one little spot of New York and like no one even goes to, no one wants <laughs> to actually go to <laughs> Times Square ever like why does anyone want to go to Times Square so I was like you know what they can keep it they can keep it I'm not doing any more of these meetings we can go to the King's Theater and in Brooklyn, do a play come on. That, and actually sell tickets for $20 each and actually get Beyonce, Rihanna, Harry Styles, like mm-hmm. all these people who've come see the play here, we can get Don't them the kings. Yeah. Like, the thing is people want to go where the cool thing is and the cool thing ain't here. Maybe. But, but now
0: It's here with you.
1: <laughs> now it is. Alright, time for a break. When we come back,
0: Jeremy will make you rethink the way an audience is supposed to act at a Broadway play. BRB. The following message comes from our sponsor, Chipotle, working to champion young farmers like Kelsey Cruz, a hog farmer for one of Chipotle's pork suppliers, Nyman Ranch. As a sixth-generation farmer in southwest Iowa, Kelsey recognizes that the lifestyle is changing rapidly in today's urbanizing world.
1: You don't hear of anyone that's like, I'm going to be a farmer. Unfortunately, you have to be in this day and age, either born into it, or you have to know someone that's going to give you that opportunity to say, um, rent some ground from you or let you buy a, a, you know, a, a plot of land to get yourself started on. And that's not an easy or a financially realistic task for someone who say is, is our age in their early 20s. Your food has to come from somewhere and it has to continue coming from somewhere. I get excited telling people about how my family raises pigs. So, That's near and dear and important to me. To learn more about how Chipotle
0: is working to champion young farmers through three-year contracts for eligible farmers under 40, go to chipotle.com slash farmers. Check out our daily crash course in economics, The Indicator. In less than 10 minutes, we tackle important topics like unemployment, the housing crisis, and how Justin Bieber saved the Icelandic economy. NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Listen now. I want to talk one about your strategy with this show. You're you're all about getting those big names there and getting publicity for the show, which I really appreciate. It mm-hmm. works; it's making us talk about it. But two, I want to talk about the way you've been screening this show. Um, the show that I went to last night of yours, it was a, it was a mixed audience, probably majority white, yeah, but it was mixed. It was mixed. Yes, there were black folks there, white folks there, brown folks there. I saw some folks coming up that had won the lottery or whatever. Were like, you like, in the orchestra? I was down. Yeah, yeah, that's the orchestra. Yeah, Did yeah. you look
1: in the the mirror to see the mezzanine? yes what did the mezzanine look like it's full but yeah what did it look like uh it was a mix of people good good because like a lot of times what i've been noticing which is really exciting it's like it's a small win but it's a win uh-huh. is that in the mezzanine it's like very 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 black and brown which uh, is amazing yeah it's amazing and in the orchestra it's been like mixed but like it's like there also is this weird metaphor right there about like you know literally like like what tears, slavery, yeah. yeah, and also what slavery meant to the country, right? It's yeah. like it's very easy for ever, for a lot of white people to pay $150 to yep. play and on and Broadway. sit in the front, yeah. And then who's up there in the back for $39, yes, yeah. you know, yeah. there's like a metaphor at play mm-hmm. there too that yeah. I think is significant, yeah. You know, also, I made it so that the mezzanine seats are the best seats. <sighs> Oh, yeah. I like that's that. A, that's the secret people don't know. Pay $39, sit in the last row, you will have the best seat in the house. Huh. At least to me.
0: Okay, okay. I want to talk about a few screenings you've done of Slave Play where you purposely, or, or, or was it just once, you, you tried to make the audience all black? Twice. Twice. Gonna, yeah, there's going to
1: be another one January 8th. Okay.
0: I have read a lot about this night. It sounds magical. Like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that night you had help from and funding to like get a lot of these tickets for black people i think ultimately you had to let a few white folks in because like you had to
1: yeah I mean, they, they, some black people brought their white boyfriends okay. friends whatever um and then there's some people just like bought a ticket you know okay like, i don't care i'm calling yeah, yeah but it was mostly black it was it was like almost all black and like you were there
0: it, it seems from what i've read about it it seemed like a totally unique kind of broadway night you let folks sit wherever they want. Mm-hmm. They got to move around in their seats. You started 10 minutes late. You said a few words at the start. You had someone read a poem. You let folks be on their phone and go out to the bathroom whenever they wanted to go. How different was that night from from the typical Broadway night? Uh, very
1: different. <laughs> it was yeah. like being at a concert. Or like being at a... um. It was like being at a concert or being at... Like any sort of um, I'm trying to find the right words for it. Um, it felt like being at an event. Sounds like so church, play. and like also like church. Yes, yes. It was like I mean there were like it was like there were moments when people couldn't move on from certain scenes. Like I, I mean I have I literally was so excited by what was happening that I took videos of people laughing. Really? Because it was just like the kind of laughter that you don't hear. Um, ever. It was just like it was like it was insane. Like it rocked the floor. But yeah, it was truly, it was truly, truly, truly a magical night. Do you think, wh- so it seemed as if the crowd was just more
0: lit, more hype, louder, engaging with the work more. hmm That's bold and ballsy to do in a space like Broadway that is full of such
1: tradition. But it's not, it's not bold or ballsy because, you know, when, um, when there were, so there's so many moments early in, so like when literally um, Melvin Van Peebles did ain't supposed to die a natural death, there were multiple nights he bust full busloads of people up, because he did a full radio tour of his play. He bust full busloads of black folks up to see the play, and most of that theater was black that night. You know what I mean?
0: Why do you think then, in the discussion of how your play is playing on Broadway, that so many folks
1: critiquing your work and talking about your work have forgotten about that history? Well, because people don't know history. People don't read. Yeah. A lot of people don't read, and I think that's like a fact, yeah. you know. And I think it's like not like it's not me sitting on a high horse, like mm-hmm. like it's just like I am someone who happens to like to read, so I've read a lot. But there are a lot of people who don't read. That's why people misquote Toni Morrison when they talk about me and my play. I'm just like, well, you both don't read and don't watch. Well. What did they misquote of Toni Morrison? They talk about Toni Morrison's conversations around the black gaze. Huh. um in in relationship to my play g-a-z-e not g-a-y-s yes exactly <laughs> um i wish she had talked more about the black g-a-y-s uh uh-huh. um but tony morrison has this really famous quote that was that she's said in multiple interviews but the, probably the most significant one was her interview with charlie rose where she talks about it and charlie rose is like so did you not write this for me like you know he's like oh, he's God. being very like in his i was in the documentary her. i remember this, yeah, yeah it's in the documentary and she's like listen my book's I want everyone to read my books. Mm-hmm. But what I say is that you, um, that I did not write it for you. You know, it's like it's like the Baldwin quote. Like you know, you take that little white man on your shoulder and you take him, that's what's your ear and you take him off. And that's literally what I've said every time I've talked about this play that I did. Mm-hmm. And that's literally in all the actions around this play mm-hmm. is me taking the little white man on my shoulder and saying sit over there, you know, and not doing it any of the ways that no. If if I cared about white love and white attention a lot, I would have done an Amex buyout for my play, mm-hmm. and I didn't on purpose, which meant I made less money and the play looks less successful on a monetary level than it actually is on a like attendance level. But that was something I did because I wanted to make space for Black people in my space. Now I can't I can't imbibe with your relationship to what you imagine my the gaze of my play is because or who the gate like, for whom I wrote my play mm-hmm. because i know that a litany of young Mm -hmm. black boys and young black girls have come to me and said they saw themselves in my work and they felt like they felt seen by my work and i and i don't know what else what else can can you say what, what else can i say yeah
0: yeah one of the things and i actually had a segment on my show a few weeks ago with a critic um talking about the debate that you have raised over technology in these spaces You are someone who has made headlines for being okay if someone's like on their phone a little bit during the show. Even if it's like Rihanna or Kiki Palmer, two folks that have come to see your show. A lot of these Broadway purists hate that. One, why do you think that is? And two, why does it feel like the world of theater is slower to advance into modernity than like a lot of other spaces and places?
1: Well, because um, fascists did a lot of good work on the theater. And that's again something I know because I read and the people who are saying Rihanna can't be on her cell phone literally don't.
0: Also, one, it's Rihanna. It's
1: Rihanna. Rihanna could run through that theater naked. <laughs> but also it's so Rihanna. Could my mom. I mean my thing is that like <laughs> I feel like people keep being like, Oh, Jeremy only didn't care because it was Rihanna. I literally it had nothing to do with it being Rihanna. It had to do with the fact that like I know for a fact that I have gotten bored in a play and texted someone. So that I would be a hypocrite. And I know a lot of other people have too. You yes. know what I mean? Or like just like or pulled out their phone to look at their look at their text. Yeah. I also also know that sitting in a theater with my right white friends who will literally be on their phone, sending a quick email—they never get attention for they that. They never get attention for it, and I always do. Mm. So, and, and the thing that, that's really funny is that like Wagner, a very famous fascist, <laughs> is one of the only reasons that people are completely silent in the theater in the West. Um, don't uh, like have to sit in the dark in the theater in the West, and don't talk or move or get out of their seat until an intermission. Really? Yes, because really? They literally. He literally decided that that's what had to happen, and then everyone just to watch his did operas. it. Well, yeah, because we saw it, and they're like, "This is actually kind of cool." And like for him, it was like cool because like he had done it, and he's Wagner, like Wagner, like fascist, but major, right? <laughs> and like, like um, this thing about a lot of fascists—they like really can be major sometimes, uh-huh. um, uh, majorly insane, majorly chic, you know, it depends on like what lens you're looking at it under. Um, but yeah, like, but before that, theater was lit. Theater was a place <laughs> where like, people could sit in the balconies during like an opera. And like, so like, it was it was very classed, right? But like, poor people sat, sat below. Uh-huh. And there were all these weird little balconies that other people could sit in and like they would have food. They would have t- dinner. You could throw food. You, yeah, you, you could, could throw talk. Food. You talk s- about other people in other boxes. It was like the gossip time. People would literally, if moments were really good in a play, uh-huh. they could be like, yo, 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 do that again. And they do that would part again. And then they rewind the play and Run do that back. again. And I'm like, <laughs> why can't we why do can't that? Why can't we
0: do that? Well, this is the thing about perceived history. And I'm sorry to call and call someone else into play here, but there's this really great essay in Gia Tolentino's book at the end to read of Trick Mirror yeah. where she breaks down how all of the things that we think are like part of marriage history, the white gown being given away, doing it this way, that way, that way she's like, those things are recent and these things change over time and the things that we think have been set in stone forever about these institutions and, and things, they're corporate and made up by some random person and you can do whatever the hell you want and we forget that Yes, and you've remembered that but the world, some of the Broadway world is mad at you about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they can get over it. Like, it's like they can literally get over it because, like, for me, if the thing that's most upsetting to you about my play is that I'm more excited about having people who've maybe never seen a play at my theater. Mm-hmm. So, like, if they need to like live tweet their experience while they sit in the theater watching my play. Also, that's good publicity for you. Yes. You yes. want that. I'm a young black queer playwright doing a play on Broadway at 30 years old. Period. Point blank, never happened. Mm. Never happened. And if anyone wants to talk about it, <laughs> Yeah. Good. Good. It's like it's like my play is not based on a major IP. I literally asked for there not to be stars in it. Like I did not because I don't my play got famous off Broadway with eight people who were not stars. Yeah.
0: Time for one more break. In a minute I ask Jeremy about interracial dating in
1: his own life. Be right back. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Want to learn how to make an amazing podcast kind of like this one? Check out NPR's podcast about the Student Podcast Challenge. It's full of tips and tricks and bits of inspiration. There's new episodes every Sunday. That's NPR's Student Podcast Challenge, the podcast. Listen now.
0: I will say, so I did the thing where I went to your show and the person I brought with me was the guy that I'm seeing who was a white. Oh, wow. And after- I love that
1: you're brave enough to say that on the radio.
0: Well, I might not make it in. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but what I found myself saying to myself was like, well, one, there were like moments where I was like, this is so biting, so incisive, so hilarious. Then there were other moments that just made me so mad. And I, I'm still figuring out where I what land. What made you mad? At first- I couldn't because I went into it cold. Mm-hmm. I knew that there were reviews, but I purposely avoided the reviews and I only read like the interviews with you because I didn't want to know any plot when I yes, went in. So yes. I really knew no plot. So it took me ten minutes to figure out what decade y'all were in. Yeah. And then it was just like, I don't know, when like when watching sex and certain words be said during sex amongst two people of a different race having sex. That was, I hate the word triggering, but I guess triggering. Yeah. And so that's what I'm still working through because there are some moments where I'm like, you put, you, you nailed it. I've been feeling that and you expressed it. And there were other moments where I was like, how dare you? And I clutched my pearls. Yeah. Right. And so I'm grappling with all of this when the play is done, but then after it's done, he just wants to talk all about it. He just wants to talk, 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 talk. He's in the Uber looking up reviews, reading, 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 talking, talking. And finally I was like, we can't talk about it tonight. When we get to your apartment, we're going to put on Netflix and watch, I don't know, The Great British Bake Off. But I I can't talk with you about this right now.
1: And isn't it interesting that it mirrors the second act? Yeah.
0: (laughs) I was like, I can't talk with you. Because, like, I have to figure out a way to package these words so he gets it. Mm -hmm. In many ways, he gets race. We talk about it all the time. But some of the stuff that I'm going to talk with him about regarding this play, I don't have words yet for it that he'll understand. Yeah. So that's what I'm still dealing with. Yeah. But it, it is, I have not seen art that provocative in years. And I admire that. I admire the provocative nature of the show. It is trying to push all the buttons. But it's so funny because I don't, for me, it's not. Okay. Okay. For me, it's just like speaking, But you know how I'm, folks could see that it's pushing buttons.
1: Yeah, no, I know how people can feel like I came into it like I'm gonna push that button and push this button. Yeah. I, I knew what traditions I was a part of, but I feel like that tradition is about being true to like what lives inside of your unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. And like and like for me, the so like all three acts are like trip it's a triptych on violence, right? Okay. Yeah. This is, uh, this is me doing, like, a rare moment of, like, telling people about the play. Okay. okay. Um, and the first act of the triptych, I mean, the first, the first part of the triptych is uh, about the violence of um, performing history, mm-hmm. um, reliving history, rewatching history. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like, re- the, the, uh, like, the history of, like, slave performance mm-hmm. is so triggering to me mm-hmm. um, because we don't know what slaves talk like.
0: That's true. We don't
1: know what they moved like. We don't. And, cause, and and we don't know what they moved like from their words. All we have are the white gays telling us what they talked about. Um, not G-A-Y-S, but G-A-Z. G-A-Z-E. Um, because, you know, even Solomon Northrop's story, you're like, I, people are like, I don't know if he wrote that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, there are people who, like there's, like, there's all this contingent around who wrote what. Like, ain't I a woman is, like, maybe not the vernacular that she said that in because a white person, like, recorded it. Uh-huh. Right? Huh. So it's like... Like all of these things are things that I find really curious and interesting, and also like violences. Like it's violent that I don't know. I don't have a record of my of my history, um, and how my history moved, how my history talked, how my history like um, processes existence, right? And all I have are movies to go on, mm-hmm. and so I was like, "What What does that slave movie about black sexuality look like?" You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that and that I recreated all the, all this all the echoes of that inside of what Kanisha jim alana philip dustin and gary do in the first act yeah right yeah it's like dude, that's why the that's why the third one is so confusing you yeah. know because you're like you're like oh yeah they're literally they're literally is like that's such a jumble this is gonna be just whatever you, yeah. Know? Yeah. you know what I mean? like it's like they each are so imbued with like a violence of like um a violence of amnesia mm-hmm. um that, like, you have to just, like, go to some other space with it, you know? Um, and then the second act is about the violence of um, the ivory tower. Well, the so second act for
0: me felt like a total deconstruction of the mental health industrial complex. And the way in which we allow mental health professionals sometimes to tell us total BS.
1: Yeah. And also just the way in which, like, as black people, we all come out of ivory ins- these ivory towers with new language for what our identity means to the world at large. That, like, literally still came to us from white people. Yes. You yes. I mean? Even if your professor was black, it the language all, to define blackness yeah, came from these white actors. It's Freudian. It's this. It's that. Yes. You know, it was all. It's Hegelian. It's like yeah. all these Germans. Really. Yeah. Like these Germans giving us like ways to understand yeah. our like our space in the world. Yeah. Well, and then you do this
0: really great thing of showing how the mental health industrial complex is so eager to give black people any and all maladies. Mm-hmm. Oh, y- y'all must be really bad. All of you must have gone through so much stuff. Y'all must have all the disorders. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. So that stuck with me. Everything, is so much yeah. stuck with me. And then me, the third
1: man. act is about the violence of like being embodied and entangled. You know what I mean? Like, and like, and what the violence of memory that like you can't shake off your skin. Like, yeah. like our histories are written on our skins and there's literally nothing we can do about it, no matter how dark the lights are.
0: Mm. You know?
1: Uh-huh. Like there are certain moments that like, you were entangled with a white person like when a white person comes by and touches my head touches my hair in a certain way i flash back to some space that i never have lived and i don't know why it is it should it should not be that big a deal that a white person touches your hair it really shouldn't but, but also don't touch my hair don't don't touch my hair but like on just like a, on a level on a human human level if you look at animals engaging animals are always like in and out in and out in and out but there is something that when a white person touches your hair you flash back to someplace you well, didn't the
0: ancestors just pop out yes the ancestors jump out Stand on that table us. and sing, "We shall overcome" with their fist Yes, raised.
1: like the thing that makes that white person want to touch your hair is that they're like, "I own you." You know, and yeah. like that's what you hear when they do it. Yes, and you go back to being like you ain't mine. And you like, become <laughs> that Turner all of a sudden. You know. Yes, and I think that's a part of what the third act is doing. It's like saying that like no matter how dark the lights are, that's still a part of our memory, and that is a violence because we don't know what to do with it, and maybe our body's the only way that we can like figure that out. Well, but in, yeah. and even then, maybe there is no release. Yeah.
0: Well, and then what's complicated about it, how we refer back to the ancestors and call that back? So much of that history wasn't even written by them. No. So it wasn't. the history we, we call back was mythologized yes yes it's just anyways I'm still processing as you can only see Um, I there have been a few interviews where you talk about challenging Broadway and challenging its conventions but you basically say in so many words I don't expect to be here too long. Cause once you start challenging these folks and the way they do things, they don't let you stay. And, and you say this in the same, like you've been winning awards. You were, you've just renamed Broadway briefing show person of the year. Which is,
1: that actually is crazy.
0: That actually made me feel something differently. Yes. But like you getting all these accolades, do you still feel like you won't be welcomed on Broadway too long?
1: I, I don't, I mean like people feel like I've won a lot of accolades, but I haven't. And again, I had a really, so Claire Barron is one of my very good friends. and I've, like I love her so much and you know I was sort of like talked about the fact that like last season I was I mean I don't want to talk about this cuz it makes me, it's like oh poor you like blah, blah, blah. but I was I was literally snubbed for every major award that you can get for an off-Broadway play like yeah. literally every play that premiered at the at New York Theater Workshop and the Artistic Director all won Obie awards last year huh. and Slave Play didn't which is it felt then it felt specific. Yeah. right? That was yeah. when I was like, oh wow, people don't love what we're doing over here. Which is like fine. But like, um, but Claire was like, some people win awards and some people get to go to Broadway. And I was <laughs> like, and I, which I was like, you know what? Point taken. You yeah. know what I mean? And so I, you know, right now I'm winning some awards and I am on Broadway and I don't know I don't know what that means. But I also don't I mean I think that like the likelihood of this the likelihood of this play winning a major award in, um, in June, like the big award, is very unlikely. Like, that's why I'm like, I'm not going to be here that long. Because like, our play is a limited run, mm-hmm. right? We're only going to run 179 performances. Again, because I know history. Only in the last 40 years, only two plays have ever won a Tony, that uh, weren't running when the Tonys were happening. Both of them were two-part epics. The Coast of Utopia by Tom Stoppard, mm-hmm. and the other one was Nicholas Nickleby in 1982. Otherwise, every play that's won has been running in um, June when the Tonys happened, because people vote for the Tonys. Yeah. For for us to win that big award would be like us uh, opening a movie in February and expecting to yeah. win a Tony- uh, an Oscar. Yeah, And like the other thing is, our play's not going to recoup, right? Hmm. So, because our play is a limited run, we won't recoup. So, generally, the thing that makes investors excited about exciting so new voices is, 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 either, either, is either either you're making money or you're winning an award, right? Yes. And because I don't think my play is going to do either of those things, and I, it, because I'm a realist, and I also like have a histor- histori- historiography with like these things, I um I do have like a, I do have questions about it, but I do think that what's interesting about my year is that. Um, I mean, I'm the only playwright that's ever been on the cover of Out Magazine, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think Billy Porter's written a play, maybe. Um, but, like, I'm, like, Billy Porter's Billy Porter, you know? Yeah. I, I, it's crazy that Out Magazine was, like, you're going to be on the cover of a magazine. Like, I think all of these different things I've done inside of the industry to make people who aren't n- normally excited about theater excited about a play yeah. um, might be a reason why someone might bring me back to, like, write the book for a musical. Okay. But I don't, yeah. know, I don't yeah. know that someone's going to take, like, my next play to Broadway. Yeah.
0: Emotionally, though, it must be a weird thing to wrap your head or, or to wrap your spirit around being such a big name in the Broadway world right now, but also knowing, at the same time, you might not be here too long.
1: Do you? No, I I don't mourn it because it wasn't a place I wanted to be. It's like it's like I got invited to a party I didn't expect I was gonna go to. Right? It's like when I lived in LA, I ended up all the time at crazy house parties I didn't expect to be at. Uh-huh. Like it was just like, You're just like hanging out, and then all of a sudden you're at David Geffen's house. You're like, how did I end up here? And <laughs> you're like, oh, it's kind of wild. Like Oh, I'm spending the night? Cool. So <laughs> you spend the night at David Geffen's house and then you leave. And you're like, that was really fun that night I spent at David Geffen's house. And you go back to your normal life in your normal apartment in Silver Lake.
0: And you're okay with that. And,
1: you're, and I'm 100% okay with it.
0: What I really want to ask you, I know you have to go and I have to go, and maybe this is a question for our next interview. Was there an interracial relationship in your past that is directly channeled
1: into the creation of Slave Play? Dun, dun, dun is the Oprah question. No, <laughs> no, I think it's like, I mean, I think it's like, for me, that play, this play is about like every interracial relationship I've ever had in the sense that like, um, even like the play, feel, I mean, one of the best responses, Tomashi Jackson, who was just in the Whitney Biennial had this like, Otherworldly, like she's seen the play seven times now. I think. Oh my goodness, but she had like an otherworldly response to seeing it off Broadway. And she was like, You wrote a play about going to Yale, like mm. being like, on all those white folks, huh? Being on all, all those white folks, yeah, because there's an entanglement that that like is so violent and you can't. Undo it and like it gets inside of your head in all these different ways. And so I feel like the play is more so about that than about anything else. Like that entanglement I've had okay. with white institutions since I was five years old. Yeah.
0: Well, you had that wonderful out essay about, you know, yeah. growing well, up as a black body immersed and fluent in white culture.
1: Yeah. I think that was, was the
0: out, was it, it vice? Vice. Yes,
1: vice. yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. And that, and that was another thing. I mean, I dated a lot of white boys because for a long time I thought that that was all I was worth. And I actually really, I do want to say, on this podcast that I hope black people listen to, um, it really has made me feel really crazy that that essay is so misunderstood online. Because mm. I do wonder if people actually finish reading it.
0: I finished reading it.
1: What did you think of it?
0: It made sense. And it hit pretty close to home. Because, you know, I I, I grew up in white spaces and I work in a very white space right now and there and there is this subtle, insidious... Uplift of whiteness mm-hmm. that you become a part of too. Yeah, and how do you untrain that? How do you get past that? How do you move past that? But also keep getting your check, keep going to work, remain friends with these white folks that you've become close to. Yeah, it's this challenge. It
1: was. It's interesting because I feel like I I get in trouble because of the lead on the article, mm. which um, anyone who knows what journalism knows, the playwright doesn't, or the writer doesn't write. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like the the lead of the thing is so it's called "Decolonize My Desire." Then. How I how I came to terms with my attraction to white men, which I was like, that's not what the play is about. The, this essay is about this essay isn't about how I came to terms with my attraction to white men. It's about how, how I you like, came to terms with yourself. Yes, how I came to terms with my attraction to myself and yes. and, tra- and attraction to men like me and like how I'm like finding these new ways. You know what I mean? Like it's like that's actually what it is. Like you know, there's a really there's a really good writer named Hari Zayad, who I think has been like hyper critical of slave play because I think in his mind he thinks that it doesn't do the work of like criticizing or lacerating the black the black people inside of the play for having um, what he sees as like um, anti-black sentiment and they're like sort of like search for white acceptance.
0: All black people have anti-black sentiment beat into us from the 100%. from the first day just by the culture.
1: Yeah, but I feel like for me, I feel like I didn't need to do that work in in this play or in daddy, because I did that work in that essay. Like I feel yeah. like the whole essay is me being like, this I was trash. Was. Yes. Like I looked at everybody who looked like me and said it's like, you're less than me, yeah. but I'm more than you, Yeah. you know? And like that essay is me trying to say like deeply articulate it. Like I was like, that was crazy. Yeah. That was truly crazy. Yeah. And like, and I've I'm, learned from that. I've learned from that. And I'm trying to work myself yeah. into a new space by writing myself into a culture that doesn't see space for me.
0: Yeah. Are you dating someone now? Yeah, I am how many times have they seen slave play
1: they only saw it once He saw it at the opening okay yeah
0: i i would ask his race if you'd let me okay do <laughs> you want to know uh, i do
1: he's no i'm, I'm actually uh, no this is going to be the first time i'm keeping a relationship like actually secret um and it makes me really excited that like i have one thing that like isn't a part of the public eye mm. but i think that it like I think that like he will start to be a part of my work if he stays around longer than eight months. But I think there's been really exciting to have something separate. I like that. Yeah, I because like I've that. been I was and like I think that was one of the reasons why the boyfriends I had in the year the last three years have been like harder because like you know it's like when you have a boyfriend you like want to put them on Instagram and like put them on like no I don't <laughs> yeah. well I did I yeah. definitely did I was like yeah. oh my god no, no. and then this one I was like you know what I'm good. Yeah. You know? What does Rihanna smell like? Then we got to go. Rihanna smells like bubble gum and seafoam. <sighs> Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Jeremy O'Harris, thank you so much. Thank you
1: so much, Sam. This was an honor. This is amazing. All
0: right. Thanks again to Jeremy O'Harris. This is Slave Plays last week on Broadway. Dear listeners, go check it out ASAP if you are in New York. The last show was January 19th, but Jeremy's team did tell us that we can safely say that Slave Play will be performed in a city near you in the coming months. On top of that, Jeremy wrote a movie. It is called Zola. It premieres at Sundance this month, and his other play, Daddy, is going to London. And he has a new play debuting in New York City this May. It's called Tell Me If I'm Hurting You. I, for one, can't wait. All right, listeners, don't forget we are back this Friday with another wrap on the news and culture of the week for that episode, you know how we do. We ask you to share with us the best thing that happened to you all week. Send me an audio file doing just that. Record yourself. Send that file to me at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. You might hear yourself in the show. Okay, Till then, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.